Welcome to Constructive Curiosity, a podcast that promotes personal growth, authenticity, and helping others through inspirational messages, techniques for success, and interviews with extraordinary people. Follow and subscribe on YouTube and Instagram at Constructive Curiosity or listen on your preferred podcast platform. The journey begins now. Hello and welcome to Constructive Curiosity. We're going to be sticking with our brand topic and building brands with brand and marketing guru, Doug Whitney. Doug, how you doing? Doing well, Casey. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, Doug, you've had an impressive career. So I'll give a little bit of background before we get into that, though. So Doug and I have known each other for a while. Actually met on the baseball field. So Doug was one of the better players on the team that I put together. That was a ragtag group of misfits, and we had a lot of fun. But I wouldn't say we were a great, a great team, though. I agree. I don't think we were great, but we definitely had the most fun. Yeah. yeah. It was almost like a bad news bears type situation I'd go with there. Absolutely. Remember Kyle from that team? Colin? Yes. Great guy. Funny guy. Just so many characters. It could have been a movie almost on that one. Should have recorded it, you know? <laughs> it's a little bit before everybody recording everything, though. So I know. Missed our window. time. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So what do you do with branding? What's your career path look like? Yeah, my career path has really been um, quite a journey and it's been a mixture of things just trying to just kind of like following curiosity, um, which is why I appreciate kind of what you're doing with this podcast and personal growth. That's certainly been a big part of my life and something that I've spent a lot of time and energy focused on. So I actually graduated college as a um, as an operations major. So I thought that I was going to work in a manufacturing facility and find the, the most efficient ways to produce widgets and get it out the door quickly. And what I, uh, what I learned is while I did enjoy those things, I kind of got these little tastes of other paths that I began to chase. So it started with managing projects uh, for those type of operational executions, where I got to partner with the marketing team and then was very interested in kind of, you know, the packaging that they developed and, uh, the different aspects that went into those projects. And then I started working on, um, I, I left that company, moved on an opportunity to manage marketing projects. And that was kind of my first taste of real marketing and working with big CPG clients like Procter & Gamble and General Mills. Um, and that was really cool. And that's where I first kind of felt at home of like, wow, this is really interesting. And from there, it went more and more from that tactical execution side to blending into more and more strategy. So in the moves that I made, it went from, uh, you, know, you know, again, kind of those tactical programs, then understanding, okay, why are we doing this? And what part does it play in our larger brand and marketing opportunity or, or that of our clients really in my case. So I was on this agency side, supporting multiple clients at a time for the better part of the last decade um, or a decade plus to date myself any further. But, um, and I worked with a number of different, you know, CPG clients, like I mentioned, but also non-endemic to that. So, you know, business to business could be SaaS, which has really taken off in recent years, services, um, even nonprofits. And those all have different challenges and different stories to tell and different ways to be effective. So my original scope of, of understanding really started in coupons and pricing and promotion, what role that played and then led into um, digital advertising and what role does that play? And then as I expanded more to these other stuff outside of CPG in particular, it's like you have to find different ways 
to engage those consumers and check those boxes. And that's when I really started to get deep into brand strategy and what role that plays and the storytelling uh, and finding consumers in the right places. So I really learned a lot through this variety of agency experience and working with tons and tons of different clients. And then most recently, about six months ago, I actually just had my six month anniversary check-in today, uh, I joined Finit. And this is my first, not first, but first in a long time brand side opportunity to lead our marketing and strategy for, for the future to come. So, um, and they're in a great spot, you know, we're about 160 employees. So, you know, kind of a small to mid-sized company who has done really well, but has never truly invested in marketing and kind of telling their story broadly. So now I get the, the opportunity to come in and do that and rather be, and be spread across 10 to 15 clients. I get to focus on one client and that's my own brand, which is really fun, presents a whole new set of challenges, but also a lot more fun opportunities. Imagine that sounds like you know getting to hone in and focus on something that you get to I would reap the benefits isn't exactly the right way to say it, but you know you you're more invested. It's not just for a client that you're gonna build something, then they're gonna go execute and then you're done. It's something you can continually evolve and adapt. I'd imagine that's just a much more rewarding experience. Yeah, and I think both are rewarding in their own ways, right? So I don't want to discount anything on the agency side. And that's uh, it was great for me and my development. It's great for a lot of people for their entire career. But I definitely felt that need to see things all the way through, right? Rather than kind of work on this one component, toss it over the wall and let them fit it into the machine. Um, you know, being on that side and being able to see all the aspects of the machine, right? Of hey, we're working on the social media post that plugs in here, working on PR that plugs in there and have it all run cohesively together is just a brand new experience and something I'm having a lot of fun with. That's awesome. And you got to keep finding ways to enjoy what you're doing. It sounds like you've found an industry that you like, you're doing a job you enjoy. And that's part of being authentic, which is huge part of this show. We talk about it almost every week, if not every single week. Being authentic, because if you're doing things that you don't enjoy or you can't be yourself and execute the skills that you have and like to use, you're not going to be nearly as successful. I totally agree. You know, and a, and a quick story on authenticity, and it's a little unrelated to, to marketing and branding, but um, in a way I think very related is some of my experience through leadership. You know, so I've led a number of different teams throughout each of my stops and different experiences. And one lesson I learned the hard way early on was I, in my first kind of real management position, I had a small team and we were starting on a new client. It was a big opportunity and I wanted to be the, the right boss, right? Like this is what I'm supposed to say. This is kind of, you know, what the, the corporate handbook says to do and, and to say and, and how to act. And, you know, I kind of did everything by the book and I thought I was doing it really well, but it just wasn't connecting with my people, right? Like I still had, I was still me in a sense and outside of work, they kind of saw my personality, but it was never in work. Like there was work, Doug, and there was after hours, Doug. Um, and I learned kind of the hard way. That's just not the best way to get your goals accomplished. So the next opportunity that I had and I, when I moved to a new company and uh, earned a new role, it was like, you know, I'm just going to be me and see how it goes. Right. And like, what's the worst that could happen is, I fail miserably and you know, I'm still young enough, I can start again. And what I found is by actually just being fully authentic and being a little bit silly during work hours and, and making jokes, but still being serious about getting the job done, people were much happier to be a part of the team. They felt invested 
they felt connected. Uh, and I have like lifelong friends that have come out of you know, people that have just been on my team, who even after I've moved on from that position, you know, they still contact me for, you know, either just to say hi or for mentorship. Um, and that's just a part of how I operate now. It's just, I'm going to be me and I'm going to make mistakes. And that's also a part of being authentic. But I think the end results are, have been much, much better. I 100% agree. Now you're speaking one right into my wheelhouse. I love talking about leadership, working on a leadership book right now. And what you talked about is being that junior leader, you know, first time in that kind of position. Yeah. That is a universal struggle. That's one of the first aspects of the book talks about, okay, so what do we all struggle with? We think we have to be a certain type of leader, whether that's authoritative or, you know, by the book or we got to be the hard nosed guy or whatever you want to call it. But that's the very first step is everybody thinks I have to do it this way. Cause that's what you see on TV and movies, or you've had a coach or somebody who's been like that. And like, well, that's what you have to do to be successful. And the people I had on last week, uh, Dr. Simon Cleveland, Dr. Marissa Cleveland, their book is fantastic to tell you. And the, the title is There Is No Box. And they talk about the relatable type of leader. And what you're just talking about there, that is exactly, you're relatable because you're authentic. You are who you are. You don't try to hide the, you know, who you actually are because you can only wear a mask. And I've told this before, so listeners are probably going to start complaining on me. But I had my best boss I ever had in the military. I had done his job for about six months before he came in. And when he came in, he's like, okay, you know, now I'm taking the job. You're going to step down to this. But he understood what that was going to do to me. You know, mentally, everybody has pride. Everybody gets used to what position you're in. So when he pushed me aside, though, he says, okay, now tomorrow, come in exactly as the person you're going to be from here on out. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. So I took that. And yeah, this is who I'm going to be. This is my authentic self in this new role. And I just took that and I've used it forever, just like you're talking about. You have to be who you really are because you can only wear that mask or that fake persona for so long before a stressful event happens and they're going to see right through it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then it'll come off as, wow, this is some wild departure from the person I know versus that's just a part of who he is. And so even if you slip up and make a mistake one day or having the best day or whatever, um, it's like, oh, yeah, he's human like everybody else. It doesn't set that ridiculously like the boss is perfect standard, which never works. It backfires either way. Exactly. Exactly. None of us are perfect. No, not at all. I love that you've embraced your leadership side. But before we get back to branding, what's some of the other good leadership lessons you've learned? Man, so many. Um, so many. And it's something I spent a lot of time studying. Uh, but there's also only so much you can learn through studying. It has to be through practice. and but a couple of the principles that I've always lived by are, you know, just we all have to work and we all spend a lot of time at work. So it should be enjoyable. So creating an environment that is enjoyable or at the very least not offensive, right, is a big part of it. Um, and what I mean by that is just letting pe other people also be their authentic selves, right? And, and, and it goes beyond the small talk and chit chat of, oh, how was your weekend? but actually caring about that person and asking specific questions, not how was your weekends? Oh, hey, I remember you told me you were going to so-and-so's birthday party on Saturday. You know, how'd that go? What would you end up getting them as their gift? Um, you know, asking more pointed questions to show that you're actually listening and not just paying the lip service. Um, not fearing more in-depth conversations, right? Like, and some of those are very fun. Some of those are not as fun, but I've had, 
some of the best conversations I've had with my folks that have been on my teams has been, you know, where do you want to go? What do you want to grow into? And the, the first answer is always, oh, you know, I just want to, you know, be good at my job, be good at my role. And it's like, that's not it. That's not it. What do you actually want to do? Right? Like 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if you could pick exactly where you are, what role you would be, what chair you'd be sitting in, what does that look like? Okay, cool. Now let me help you get there. And those are the more fun ones and they take some prying, but people um, tend to really opening up after that and feeling much more invested and connected in their work, which makes your job easier as a leader, one, uh, but also much more rewarding as a leader. Because now you're not just helping the business make a few more bucks, you're helping this person become the best version of themselves. So that's been a big one. Um, but also the flip side of that is not steering away from the hard conversation, because uh, inevitably, you're going to have one person or one situation that is really uncomfortable. Um, and again, learn the hard way. You can try to sweep that under the rug and move past it and just say, hey, guys, we're not going to think about that. We're moving, we're moving forward. And sometimes I can get you by if it truly is a blip on the radar. But I think once you're in leadership for at least a little while, you know when something's going to become a real problem and not being afraid to sit that person down talk to them and say, hey, listen, you know what culture I'm trying to create here because you're a part of it and you're reaping the benefits of it. But this behavior does not fit in with this culture and I can't have anything that risks that. I don't care how great your production is. You, you might be the best at this role and I really appreciate your expertise and your work, but none of that is worth more than this culture that we're building because that's what's going to sustain over time. So can be really tough, but just having those in-depth conversations, not being scared of them. What I've found is the work tends to take care of itself after that. If you set the, you know, setting the culture is such a broad term, so I almost hate to use it, but hopefully there's a little bit of examples there of, you know, once you establish those relationships, everybody's bought in. Um, one, one other thing that I've used, especially as a new leader, right? So if you're coming into a new role, taking over a new team, whatever the case might be, um, I always start from the bottom up. So start talking to, if, especially if it's multi-layers that you're managing, going to the very uh, lowest role, or the lowest on the totem pole and saying, talk to me about your role and tell me what's painful about your role. What are things that are holding you back from success? Because I know there are things that are happening. So just immediately going in and assuming there are problems because people always have problems. It doesn't have, matter how great their job is. There is something that's holding them back, whether it's, you know, sometimes it's, oh, you know, this person is really hard to work with. It's like, okay, that's a hard situation. But a lot of times it's like, my laptop is so slow that it's impossible for me to get this spreadsheet done in under two hours when it should really take me 30 minutes. It's like, let's get you a new laptop. It's 1500 bucks, right? And now we're going to make that back in two weeks on your increased productivity. And just finding little things like that. Sometimes it's a process of, hey, you know, we have to go through four sets of approvals to get this done it really shouldn't be that way you know and then you as a leader you have to evaluate that and say okay do we actually need those approvals or can we do without them can we do with two approvals instead of four and expedite that process so that has been really useful um, one in getting some quick wins in your new role but two again just gaining that buy-in right because once people see that you're invested in making their life easier for being a part of your team and improving their workspace, improving that environment, like I mentioned, 
again, your buy-in goes through the roof. Your job gets exponentially easier just by coming in and immediately not worrying about setting your system, but helping them fix a system that they have. And then if you want to iterate that every time you can, but you know, I mean, we see it in sports all the time, right? A coach tries to come in and drop their system. It might work if you have the right players, but you may not have all the right players. It's very true. I mean, music to my ears, person-centric leadership. It's, yeah. it's a concept. I didn't coin this. I can't remember exactly who did. The organization is not about the materials. It's not about the widgets. It's about the people. If you don't have the right people within the organization, you can't be successful. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, how great your product is. I know Simon Sinek's talked about it a lot over the years. You got to know your why. But like you hit the nail around the head there. People-centric, culture, yes, it's a broad, broad term. But, you know, get that camaraderie. Get that buy-in. Get them to want to come to their job. I mean, everybody initially comes to a job for one reason. It's for money. And you have to have money. But that's not the reason people stay. Exactly. People stay for the culture. They feel appreciated. They have opportunities. And they're supported. So it's the feeling that the job gets you that provides the staying power. It's not, it's not usually what gets people there, but it's what gets them to stay there. That's 100% correct. And a lot of it is, um, there are studies that show this, that it's the direct manager is a big part of that. People who like their direct boss stay in their uh, positions much, much longer. Um, but again, that all kind of stems from senior leadership and, and CEO and down, depending on the size of the organization. And I'm sure there are folks out there that have lots of different experiences and are in different situations and we'll find different ways to relate to it um and one thing just on that note that i know i struggle with early on i'm sure a lot of people can relate to this especially if you're in a larger organization and you're just a manager of a department it's like well what can i really do to change the culture right this, this organization has five thousand employees you know i can't set a new uh process for everyone to follow and improve our culture even if i think it's great you know i'm just an apartment manager and it's like i I refer back to this quote that uh, I don't remember it verbatim, but it also helped me a lot during, you know, things outside of work when the world was kind of going crazy a couple of years ago. And it's like, you just felt like, you know, the, the world was ending. It's if you want to change the world, start with your neighbor. So I refer back to that a lot in both at work and outside of work. And it's like, in that example I gave, or I kind of came in with that new team and set the culture, that actually was a situation. You know, I was a I was a department manager. I didn't have a lot of pool in the organization, but I set the culture for my team, and it became so uh, visible in the organization that then other people started to one get jealous, uh, and they would accuse it. You know, they would say <laughs> they never work. They're always just laughing over there, like they're having the time of their life, and we're over here stressed out. I mean, literally we walked by other departments, people are crying at their desk. I mean, it was like heartbreaking. And then our team's like, hey, we're gonna go work downstairs at the bar for the last two hours, um, you know, if anybody wants to join us. Like that was our culture, but we got to do that because the performance followed. Right? We did all those things, but our metrics all went through the roof. Like one of our key metrics was like an on-time metric and it went from 60% to 94%. So, like when you set this culture and then you're able to achieve those results, like you, you kind of get a free pass um, within reason to kind of keep that culture going and keep people happy. And that, that shows that, you know, results matter. If you can get results. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. Yeah, 
especially the larger the organization, the people, you know, echelons above reality is the term I use for that. They're so high up that they don't always look down to see what's happening. They just see what the report says. So like you were talking about, you can't affect all the way up to that level, but you can keep them from negatively affecting you. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I think, you know, I'll give them some credit as well. I think you're right. There's a lot of uh, leaders, especially in large companies, that's like, just give me, are they, are they red or green on this report? <laughs> um, but I think the best leaders at that level are the ones who look into why. Why are these folks so successful? Let me go downstairs and see what the heck they're doing down there. And then, oh, wow, they're running this department way differently. What can we draw from that and maybe implement in other areas? And that's how a, a company culture starts to shift. So again, going back to, I'm just a lowly department manager. What can I do? Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm just an individual contributor. What can I do? Start with your neighbor, right? And then things will organically blossom from there, given enough time. That's perfect sentiment. And it's going to segue us right into the branding because start with your neighbor. You also got to start with yourself. That's right. Here's you, some of these great insights. You, you absolutely have to, you have to know who you are before you can help anyone else. So, and that's true for individuals. It's true for companies and brands. So, you know, a lot of my experience um, in branding and brand development has been around helping people tell that story, but also pe helping people write that story for themselves before they can tell it elsewhere. So, um, you know, funny enough, I was just catching up, uh, you know, with Casey right here before the, the podcast and talking about, I'm actually going through this exercise uh, with my company, Finit, I joined about six months ago. And we're kind of rewriting our why and our purpose. Why do we exist? And, and really looking in the mirror before we try to talk to the market about what that is. And it's been such a great experience. Um, and one, because Finn, it's such a great use case because they do have a great culture, not to tout our own horn here, but <laughs> it's, it is great to have someone who has been highly invested in this as I have and creating these cultures and other organizations to come into an organization that is already doing it really, really well. And then just feeling like, excellent. Now, what can I add to it or how can I keep it going? So, you know, part of what we're doing when we're writing, you know, our why, you know, referring to, to Simon Sinek, is um, you're kind of asking those questions of ourselves. And we do that through, and typically in the marketing sense, we do it through brand workshops. Um, there are also kind of individual workshops. And, you know, I think Start With Why from, from Senate kind of, and Find Your Why from Senate kind of tries to accomplish the same thing where you grab a friend and ask each other some tough questions or, you know, some thought-provoking questions. And it's, you have to really, really pay close attention to the answers and then analyze the answers uh, multiple times. And I often suggest over multiple days because what I'll find a lot of time as I've done these both for myself and for companies, is my initial reaction is very different from the reaction I'll have three days later. Um, and I don't know why that is. It's not that I've been thinking about it incessantly for three days all the time. It is just, I wake up that morning, I reread a statement that I recorded and it hits me in an entirely different way. And had I gone with that first sentiment, that first gut reaction, I definitely would have missed something really, really valuable. That's a good perspective. I didn't even thought of the go back and explore it because well, I could talk about there. It's the illusion of maybe like the test taker illusion. You just spit the answer out and you think it has to be the right answer. 
but you can find the hidden value by going back and looking at it. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I would say if for those out there that are individuals, you can apply this company as well. Um, I encourage you to take a look at all the resources that are available online. There's a ton of great ones, um, even, you know, self questionnaires uh, that kind of put you in situations that are more dreamlike scenarios. You can draw a lot from that. So, you know, one, uh, to use a personal example, I took one of those questionnaires and it was years ago at this point. So I don't remember all the answers verbatim, but I know I talked a lot about, um, you know, creativity in different ways and it sprouted through, um, oh, you know, if I could just write music and play music, I mean, you see the guitar behind me, it does not get played very often these days, but I, I do, I promise I know how to play it. Um, but it's like, you know, if I had $10 million, I never had to work a day in my life, what would I do? I'd probably play music and I'd probably try to create music. I'd probably try to record it and share it with other people. Um, I recently took up sketching, which is, you know, I've never, I could barely draw a stick figure my whole life. So this has been kind of like a fun new hobby and realizing, okay, it can be a learned skill. You're, you're not just born and know how to draw. Uh, you can learn this kind of stuff. And like looking at these things like, well, okay, I'm not gonna be a professional musician. There's just no way that's happening. Um, okay, I'm not gonna be a, pro a professional artist that can sell for a lot of money, that's not happening. And using those examples and others, there's kind of this through line of creating, right? Uh, and then looking back, like I've written a couple of short articles. I wrote a chapter in a, in a joint author book. And I've always been very energized by these creative outlets. And that's what kind of led me to, okay, I'm in the right industry with marketing. But I think that's kind of what prompted a lot of my shift from tactical to strategic because it's, you get more and more creative, right? Not that you can't be creative in the tactical sense, but um, I really enjoy that exercise of critical thinking, deep thinking, trying to tell a story, trying to convey something the same way you would in a song or with a painting or a drawing. But I get to do it, you know, in this marketing sense and help other brands tell their stories. So tap into it perfectly. Creative creativity, yeah, that's a perfect market for you in marketing. And to understand yeah. your driving force. That's one of the hardest things to figure out because if you try to just spit it out when you're sitting down with a blank piece of paper, it never comes out right. I know it's I've, almost I've impossible. I want to do this. Then you think about it. Why? Why do I want to do that? Yeah. Scratch that. So yeah, having those exercises that kind of make you think, you know, subconsciously about what you ultimately want to do, and that'll bring you back to what your center is and how you should move forward. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to take a step further, it's not just what you want to do, but how do you want to feel? Because um, there, there are so many layers to this. And I mean, like we could create a four hour podcast if we really went down the rabbit hole. But one thing that I've learned over my career, just getting more experienced and, you know, having had, you know, a C-level role and uh, some higher, higher level roles and ultimately decided, you know, those are great, um, but it pulls away other aspects of your life. So whatever your role is, whatever your job is, um, you have to decide what balance is right for you. And there's no right answer. You know, like there's it's popular to talk about work-life balance, but it's not a permanent equation that applies to every person, right? What is right for me might not be right for Casey, might not be right for you. And I think that's really important to identify and also be open to the fact that it's gonna change over the course of your life, right? When I was a, a 
single guy or, you know, engaged and, and married without kids, had a lot more time and energy to invest in my career. Two kids later, now they're in school. I want to spend time going to school events. I want to go on field trips when they come up. Um, those things all matter a lot more to me now than a couple extra bucks on the paycheck or, you know, getting invited to this, um, you know, C-suite group or these large events. I mean, those things are great and I don't discourage anyone from going to them. It's just for me right now at this moment in my life, other things are important to me. Now in 10 years, 20 years, it might be different. I expect it will be different to some degree, but be open to that experience and be open to changing what you value um, at, at different phases in your life. And looking at your life in phases can actually be a great way to build a lifelong strategy. Um, so you know, this, I know we're talking about personal branding, but I do think it's kind of plays in because you're like a brand that a company will develop, right? You will develop as well. So the, the little startup brand that has a hand drawn icon that they paid their neighbor's dog $5 to draw, uh, it's going to look much different after they've been a multi-billion dollar success, right? And, and you're going to have a, a growth path as well that's unique to you. And I think being in tune to that and understanding, you know, at this phase in my life, what are the things that I want and I'm able to do? And then if I look ahead 10 years, okay, for this 10 year span of my life, what are the things that I think I'm going to want? Because you don't know for sure. You might get there to be totally different, but also look, what am I able to do? Right? So like to, to, to get a very easy example, but you can apply this elsewhere. It's like, I want to do a lot of skiing. Okay. I better do that now when I'm in my 20s and 30s, maybe 40s, because when I'm 70 and 80, I'm probably not going to be able to do that, or at least not going to be able to do it to the degree that I am now. Um, and think about that with your work life as well, right? So right now I'm very family focused um, and I'm still you know, pursuing my career and doing things that I really enjoy, but with a family focus, once my kids are in college, I can have a lot more time on my hands and I'm going to want to invest that time and energy elsewhere. So that's such a healthy outlook to it too. But you know, a lot of people, I mean, showing our age, go ahead and say, you know, 30s here, mid to late for some of us, we get to that point. But in your 20s, you think you have to be a success by 30. For some reason, that's been thrown in our faces, especially for, you know, the, the early millennial portion of our generation, that, you know, the 30 under 30 list or all those different things. And but yeah. you have different phases like you talked about in life. And if you're not a success by 30, okay, you can be, it's not a, you know, one quick sprint and done. It's a very long track meet, basically. You got different phases, different events, different things that are going to be important to you. And I know you'll probably attest the same as I do. What was important to me at 22 is not what's important to me at 35. It's not going to be what's important to me at 40, 45. Like it's all going to continuously evolve as you age. And I mean, one of the best people I've met in my life was one of my bosses who was about to retire and he had such a healthy outlook on life. And he's like, did I ever get the huge successes? No, I'd call it. He's literally going to might write a book called a second place life, but he loved it. He's like the experiences that I got, why I may not have been the, the champion. I may not have been the, you know, the headliner or whatever else you want to go with the experiences, the people, the way I got to embrace joy in the different phases of my life. That's what's important. And he's still doing it. So, I mean, yeah, he's all, he's almost 70 years old. Yeah, you don't have to. It's not, you're not done at a certain point until it's over for good. 
I love that. And, you know, that's why I wanted to take a step further beyond just what do you want to do? Because I think a lot of people will tie that to what do you want to accomplish, right? I want to be the best in my field at XYZ. But really, like, how do you want to feel? Because I can tell you from experience, those accomplishments, and I've had been fortunate enough to have some, you know, they feel great in the moment. And even for a couple of days or a week after, but they're very short-lived. So don't chase that feeling. I think that's a, a fool's errand chase the feeling that you can feel every day and that's what i love about my role now where you know if you were to put it on paper against maybe a previous role you'd say wow you you took a step backwards i think i took a massive step forward um one and and other other aspects of my life but two getting to tap into this feeling of creativeness every day um you know learning new skills that i didn't previously have um, getting to create and design and write uh, and tell a story. Um, that's a feeling that I don't have to get from anywhere else. And no one has to hand me a, an award to get that feeling. It is as I'm doing the work, I get to experience it. And to me, if you can get there, um, that's one of the healthiest places you can possibly be. So something to so- kind of sidetrack off that, but you know, to build off it too, just because you have skills or you're good at something, doesn't mean you have to pursue that professionally. That's one of the biggest traps that people fall into is, well, I'm pretty good with this. I could get paid a lot of money to do it. I'm just going to keep doing it. But it's going to slowly eat at you because you're not living, you're not going after the feeling as you keep talking about. You're not getting the feeling that you want to feel. Or if you do, it's not for the right reasons. So, I mean, you, you know that I'm in marketing, right? What would you expect my best subject in school to have been in, in high school, grade school? For marketing, Oof. I would say English, I guess, is what I'm going to go with. It was math. Ooh. Math is my best subject by far uh, in grade school. It was my best subject in high school. Uh, I breezed. Everybody was like so freaked out about algebra two. I breezed through that class. Um, I didn't have trouble with math until like second or third year of college. I had a calculus class, and that was the first time I felt like I actually had to try with anything math related, which I'm sure is going to aggravate some people. I'm sorry. I was could use tutoring. You could have told me that years ago. Terrible in science. Don't worry. It didn't apply everywhere. Um, but I think it speaks to your point, right? Like just because you have some natural skills, like that's great. And you can be, this can be really useful. And I use them in my marketing role. And I do a lot of data analysis, um, but it doesn't have to stop there. You can acquire skills. Exactly. Keep growing. You made me think of one of my favorite quotes I had from a teacher. So my seventh grade English teacher one day, you know, he's talking about, you know, what you want to do when you grow up and all those things. And he said, do you know why I teach English? And we're all like, you like English? He said, no, because I'm really good at math. <laughs> I was like, we're all like, what? He's like, I couldn't relate. If you didn't understand a math problem, I would just get frustrated. Mm, I struggled in English. So I could relate to you and your struggles and help you. That's really interesting. I love that. That's, a, that's, that's, a lot that's, awesome, that. that's really good. <laughs> So, Mr. Fultz, if you're listening somewhere, that has stuck with me for, good Lord, 20-something years now. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So, switching it back to branding here. So, what are some of the steps and additional, you know, things that people can do to take those, you know, the branding steps to get themselves going? So, to get yourself going, um, again, there's there's a lot of great online resources. I'm not going to pump any of them uh, because there's just, you know, find explore some different questionnaires and find what works for you. <clears throat> some things that I would encourage you to look for um, are, are find things that are, again, a little bit 
indirect, right? So rather than saying, you know, well, what do you believe in? What is your purpose? Really hard to sit down and just say with a blank sheet of paper and say, this is my purpose. Um, but asking some, some questions around that, to say, what drives you? What are you really passionate about outside of work, right? Um, what problems do you see in the world that just frustrate you to no end, right? What's a simple problem that you like to solve? Um, as you get into personality, both for yourself and for your brand, um, that's where I think you can have a lot of fun with the questions, right? So one of my favorite ones is, you know, if your brand walked into a cocktail party, like, are they, are they male or female? Are they wearing glasses? Are they not? What kind of hairstyle do they have? What clothes are they wearing? What uh, people are they talking with? What do those people look like? What are the topics of conversation that they're engaging in? And all of those things can actually tell you quite a bit. Because um, if you're thinking, you know, well, they're highly fashionable, right? Wearing the latest trends, that can tell you a lot versus someone who is like, uh, they're wearing ripped old jeans and a stained t-shirt. That tells you a lot about their brand. It's not positive or negative, right? But it can tell you much more, are you trying to, you know, be like make a pop and make a statement? Or are you trying to blend in and be relatable? Right? Those are different ends of the spectrum uh, from a branding perspective and you would approach those differently, right? Even when it comes down to things like what colors uh, should represent our brand or, you know, personally, what colors do I want to put on my resume? Um, you know, if you're trying to, if you're that pop personality, then you're probably picking louder colors. If you're blending in, you're probably doing something a little bit more subtle. Um, you know, but I think going through kind of these major sections of purpose, promise, personality, visual identity, which is how a lot of this stuff starts to represent itself, um, voice and differentiation. So those are kind of six buckets and there's others that you can tack onto that. But I think those are a really good starting place for understanding what your brand is all about, whether that's a personal brand or a professional brand. You can learn a lot about yourself by really analyzing those six areas and not just about yourself, but also how you can then help others. Right. So <clears throat> I've actually had a couple of exercises and I wish I had a good example off the bat, but I know this has come up where after going through this exercise and saying like, you know, this is our product, this is who we serve, this is what we do. At the end of the exercise, you know, a couple of weeks later, it is actually flipped and maybe we should actually have a different offering. Like we're, we're still going to do this. We're still going to maintain this path. But through this conversation, we found another angle that can also help us accomplish this this big goal, this big purpose, but now do it in a different way because it's differentiated from how other people are solving a similar problem. It's great how that just comes up, you know, the, the reflection, the different insights. You know, a lot of people start businesses. I've, I've started a business, other people started businesses, and you just think, this is my product, this is how I'm going to go to market, this is what I want to do. But if you don't know the driving forces behind it, you don't understand where you're willing to accept those risks, what risks are okay, what aren't, what you're really going to react to if you hit adversity. Yeah. And those questions and the buckets you're talking about there, those make you think about it. And even if you don't notice it initially, like you just mentioned, you can come back and be like, whoa, 
I did not see this blind spot, but now I do. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned that because um, I, I know that there is some perception out there with marketing that it's it's all fluff and pretty pictures and fluffy words. Um, and to some degree, it is some of that. But it can also be, especially in these exercises, it can inform you on how to run your business and, and how to make decisions. So, you know, we there's this concept of a brand model and it's, it's very part and parcel to Simon Sinek's start with why, right? They're kind of similar in these, these three rings, right? And once you understand why and how, right? I'm assuming everybody's seen this very popular talk, right? But it's kind of the core is, is why you exist, you know, why you do what you do. The middle is how you do it. And the what is actually the thing that you do or the product that you offer. And when you understand why and how very closely, it helps you make tons of decisions in your business. It informs who you hire. It informs um, how you promote employees, uh, how you treat employees, what programs you put out there. It informs what clients you go after. Uh, it informs partnerships that you create and business deals that you create. All of those things, once you understand, does this fit into our core? Why? Does this fit into our brand essence? Then it becomes a yes or no. It can become a very linear uh, litmus test to, to making decisions. And I think that often gets lost as, you know, that really is marketing and brand development at its core. And it's, it's an exercise that everybody needs. And on the individual level, I think it can be very, very informative, right? Especially if you're in a moment of career transition, right? Which unfortunately, a lot of people have been forced into that in recent years. Um, I think this is very important. Um, and there are going to be situations where you know, you've got to take the next job available because you got to support your family. And I think all of us can respect that. But if you're fortunate enough to be in a seat where you have some time to make a decision, researching the companies that you're applying for, right? Um, understanding who they are once you get into um, an interview cycle, asking them questions to see if they fit your why and you fit theirs is just hugely impactful on your happiness um, once you get into those roles. And again, on the entrepreneurship side, it, who are you going to deal with, right? What partnerships do you want to create? What clients do you want to work with? So that can be applied everywhere, but it all comes back to understanding that core why that core brand essence, as we use the marketing term, you know, that can just help you make tons and tons of decisions that are more than what should we put on this ad? Now I'm going to pull out a quote that you've probably heard many times because you probably like the movie, but you know, I made one decision based on money and I promised I'd never do it again from Billy Bean and Moneyball. Oh yeah. And you're, talk, you're talking about the job placement. I feel like so many people overlook the culture. And if you've ever been in a wrong fit job, you know pretty quickly and, and it's horrible for both sides. It's not just the individual, but the people you're working with, you just don't quite jive with. And you realize, man, I wish I wouldn't have just looked at what the offer was and I'd have gone deeper and realized that we're just not a cultural fit. We don't like the same things. We don't agree with the same points. We don't have the same motivations. Neither side is wrong, but you're not gonna work well together. That's, that's exactly right. And it's it's really hard and, and I get it. It is so hard to be that objective when you're in the heat of it and it's there's an offer on the table and it has a, a number for your salary that you really like and you're really attracted to or it's for a brand that you really respect and have always wanted to work for. But if you can take that moment to be objective, 
the effect on your long-term happiness is just going to be exponential. Oh yeah. So, you know, I wonder if that's something that you have talked about previously is just the, the ability to, on this self-growth path, be objective. You have touched on that, but I mean, it's something that that's core to what we talk about here. Personal growth doesn't happen if you're not objective. Emotional intelligence is one of my favorite subjects. Love learning about it. Love talking about it. If it, you can tell when people don't have self-awareness and another quote you're going to love from a different baseball movie, Bull Durham, you know, the world is made for people not cursed with self-awareness. To a point, but everyone else has to suffer with that lack of self awareness that people have. Yeah, self self awareness is um, again something that, that I've intentionally spent a lot of time uh, investing in because that's how you find answers. You know, so as you're going on this personal branding journey and finding out who you are and how you tell your story, you first got to be self aware. You know, what are the things that I'm really good at? Uh, and then regardless of that, what are the things that I want to do or do I accomplish? What are the feelings that I want to feel? What are the kind of, who are the kind of people that I want to work with? Where do I want to do it? Do I want to do it from my house? Do I want to do it from an office? Do I want to move across the country? Um, there's just so many variables that you've really got to be self-aware to tune those in. And it's, it's as true for individuals as it is for organizations. That's a hundred percent true. And people lose sight of the forest for the trees. And now we're just going all kinds of, isms there talking but yeah one of the worst leaders i've ever worked for i'll not name one organization obviously that'd be terribly unprofessional but got on a call the very first time and i wasn't in a super high position but got on a call i was the only person remote at the time didn't even turn to acknowledge me on the screen didn't ask me anything about myself not a hey how are you good to meet you just sat down turned his back and started the meeting mm. and to me i was like whoa wow that's very disrespectful. I mean, that's just not just to me personally, but you just showed everybody else in the room that if that was you on the screen, I'm not going to turn and acknowledge you. I would have just ignored you. So, and it's the, he lacked the self-awareness to understand that that's a perception. You don't just ignore people. You don't just, you can't have a high standard and then not follow it. Absolutely correct. You've got to start with yourself. Um, and you know, going through the, the marketing and branding side of this, I think you're seeing a lot of this recently in recent years with organizations. Um, and I don't know that I fully agree with all the, every organization needs to have a stance on every issue, political or social. Um, I think some people just make products and we, we should be fine with that. <laughs> but, you know, people are kind of getting forced to make decisions and take stances in some cases. And I, I respect how hard it is for these organizations to do and what I look for is, is it authentic to them? Because that's what I'm really most interested in as a, as a marketer and even as a consumer is, you know, if there's nothing worse than, hey, they made this big stance, but it's the first time they've ever done anything like this. And it's completely opposite of anything they've ever done past. I mean, immediately that kind of reeks of, okay, you're doing this to make a few bucks or because you feel like there's a lot of pressure to do so versus I would... <laughs> I would rather someone make a decision that I didn't agree with, but I could at least see that it was authentic to them. And I knew they were being who they said they were and who they proved that they have been over the past few decades, right? It's, or at least something close to it, right? I think that's that group, that organization would get my respect much more than the one who just tried to make a splashy right decision. That's one, I mean, 
this is a dated example, but Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time for many reasons. But one is the fact that that's he didn't a, get that's a debate. <laughs> Sorry, my opinion, greatest of all time. I'm not even a Bulls fan. I was a Pacers fan in that day, just but what he could pull off. But the fact is he stuck for what he believed. I'm not a politician. I don't get involved in this. He didn't have an opinion on things that people are trying to force him to have opinions. Mm-hmm. And you ever no. uh, he got a lot of backlash from people, but you had to respect him because he wasn't just going to bow down to what people wanted him to do. He was authentic. And people who do have you know strong passions to whatever cause it is, great, show that. But like you said, if you're a Fortune 500 or something like that and you've never shown you care about this once a year, you post and say, we really care. You, you really don't. Yeah, that's exactly right. Either build the practice and show it and build that trust over time or take that approach of like, we don't touch this. Like we don't, we don't talk about that. Um, and again, those organizations get backlash. We've actually seen examples of that in recent years, but I think that's easier to recover from than taking a stance that you obviously don't believe in. And then you end up slipping and then people are like, well, I thought you said you believed in this. And it doesn't matter what it is, like genuinely on whatever aisle the whatever aisle or side you sit on, genuinely doesn't matter. Um, it's just the fact of being consistent, being authentic. And then you'll find, yeah, uh, there's um, you know, Seth Godin is like the marketing guru, right? That's who everybody loves and he has great books. And, and um, he talks about, you know, finding your tribe. And there's a whole book about that. And I think that is very applicable for individuals, uh, but also companies, right? Because I think we understand the individual level because that's kind of where we used to be before there were civilized organizations. We all had our tribes and we shared a common purpose and shared a goal together. I mean, that's why we played baseball, right? You get a team, you get a group of people working together for the same goal. That's why I love like baseball and basketball. And I never played individual sports like golf and tennis. Uh, I just like the team aspect. Um, but you know, he talks about finding your tribe, and the same is true with customers. You know, one thing that I've coached organizations to do as they're building their brand and talking to their customers are find the people that want to do business with you rather than finding anyone that will take your business. Right. And it's really hard because we all just want to chase the dollars because that's what looks good on the financial reports and the PL. But the customers that want to do business with you, one, they're going to be better to work with. Two, they're going to be lifelong customers. They're going to do the first project with you, then they'll do a second, then a third, then a fourth. Then they'll also tell their buddy who works at XYZ Corp, oh, hey, you've got, uh, you're going through this challenge. Hire these guys. I just work with them. They're amazing. And really, again, to use Finn as the example, even though I've been here a short time, that's what a lot of their success has been predicated on, is they're, they're really good people and they work with clients who feel the same way they do about partnership and treating people, you know, putting people first. That's like one of our big mantras. Um, And then that just kind of radiates. And once you create that positive experience for your customers, um, that, you know, not only does it make you feel good at the end of the day, but it turns into more dollars. It turns into more revenue and more opportunities. That's hundred percent right. So talking about, you know, looking at, PL always gets me to people make the mistake of focusing too much on the numbers, which you talked about a little bit earlier. So when it comes to branding, especially we'll look at a more of a business aspect on this one. What would your advice be for like percentage wise between what the perception is, what the dollars are actually showing? Perception wise, um, 
What do you mean by that? Can you break it down a little bit more? So if people are feeling a certain way about your company, how can you tell that? Because you might have a bad sales quarter. There's a multiple reasons why that could happen. But how do you know the actual branding's working? Yeah, that's um, so there's like a funny marketing quote um, that we'll, you'll appreciate here. It's like 50% of the marketing works. We just don't know what 50%. <laughs> and like to a degree, it's true, right? Um, in newer technologies, like one of the reasons that people love digital media and digital advertising is it's much more trackable, right? And that's changing now with all these GDPR rules. And, you know, every time you go to a website now, you have to accept cookies, if you've noticed recently. Uh, that used to happen automatically. And that's so advertisers could track your moves and track when you saw an ad versus when you clicked on it. And then did you make a purchase based on clicking that ad? Uh, lots of behind the scenes stuff there so that we can tell, did our ad work? And did we get return on investment? It was a very one-to-one, -one, easily identifiable way um, to see if our advertising worked and if we're getting money back. <clears throat> now, that's changing and it's actually kind of be going back to the old way, which is you don't know, right? You don't really know what is driving people to act. Um, but there are ways that you can figure it out, right? You can do like match market testing where it's, hey, we put up um, kind of the way that they would do it previously is, you know, we put up billboards in this area, this city, or we ran uh, television ads in this city and we did it in this city that's of a similar size and demographic. Let's compare the two and see, you know, how much our, our advertising made an impact. So there's certainly things that you can do like that, that, that kind of help. But when we talk about branding, that's more at the fundamental level, right? And that's very difficult to pinpoint. What um, you can measure it through surveys, right? So you can get actual feedback about how people feel about your brand. I like to do it both internally and externally. So I think a lot of people would think, well, you know, ask our customers how they feel, but also ask your people how they feel about your brand and how they feel about working there. And that tells you so much more than just, is our logo correct, right? That tells you a lot about the environment that you create for your employees and the service that you're offering your customers and the quality of that service or the quality of that product. So there are tangible ways to measure it, but I think where you can't go wrong is being very clear about who you are, why you exist, and then always pursuing that goal, right? And being, again, being willing to be adaptable over time as your organization grows, as it changes, as you develop new services and offerings, your why doesn't have to be static, right? And I, I think that might be a trap for some organizations that's, well, this is what we've always stood for. And this is what we're always gonna be. Um, for some organizations, that's great. But for some organizations, it's you gotta change with the times. And now, you know, it started as this, uh, and this is where we see these, you know, pivots of, well, this used to be a, a creative agency and now it is a data analytics, right? Because they just found a new way to make an impact that they feel good about. So, uh, I know it's not a direct answer of like how much is this really impacting, but you do, you absolutely feel it, especially when you look at longer periods of time, right? It's very, very hard to understand, you know, in a month or two, we made this branding change is having an impact. But when you look at a year, two years, three years, that's when you really kind of get some feedback from the market that 
hey, we were bought into this brand or we feel like you've really leveled up. We feel like this is a much more premium product than it has been in the past. Um, so you, you do have to look at longer swatches of time. That makes sense. I mean, it was, a, it was a tricky question to navigate to begin with. So I think you answered it very eloquently. Well, thank you. So we're getting closer to wrapping up here. So I do have a few questions for you, then get your closing thoughts. Yeah. One question, where do you want to be in two years? Um, I, I want to be here at Finnet and here continuing to tell the story. Um, so we're investing a lot of time right now. And again, like I mentioned earlier, we never really, Finnet has never really told their story in a way that they feel like gets it all out there. Uh, so I'm super excited to kind of be authoring that and working with our senior leadership and team that's been here for a long time, help them tell that story. And I hope in two years it will be, um, that story will be available and really well received in the market. And then we're thinking about ways to, to build on that and continue to write that story into the future. So I hope I'm still sitting right here um, doing similar things and continue to be creative. And on a personal note, I hope that I'm still available to, to help other people and, and mentor people that I've worked with and, and new people that I've yet to meet to try to help them kind of unlock you know, their, their potential and their things that they want to do as well. Sounds like a great two-year plan. I think so. All right. Hang out, live, try to accomplish something. So I'm going to gonna challenge you. If you had the opportunity to pursue one more at this point, would you take a career in baseball or a career in music? Oh, geez. Um, well, music is a lot easier on the body. Um, <laughs> And my body is not held up very well. I mean, all things equal, if I could, if I could prevent injuries, I think I'd play baseball just because I love being active. Even without the game, you know, I'm still like going to the gym multiple times a week. I love to hike. Uh, now getting my boys into hiking and being out in nature and just there's something about being outside and moving that is just really important and core to me. But um I'll tell you what, those injuries really stack up. So there, there will be a day where there's nothing I can do but sit around and play music. Yeah. So that's true. I think I'd probably go with the same answer there. Music, I'm not good at playing an instrument. I like to write it sometimes. But yeah, baseball, do it as long as you can do it, I guess. But that's an opportunity. That's right. And then final question I always give. This one's a little bit deep. Makes you think a little bit. And hopefully you didn't do too much homework on the podcast. I already know the question. I've had a couple guests do that, and then I have to come up with a new I'm question. It'll be brand new, so you're going to get a, a real visceral reaction. All right, good. So pivotal point in everyone's life, you know, they come in different phases. But one age or, you know, time in your life that I try to pinpoint in on people is going from junior high to high school, middle school to high school, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. 14 is a pretty pit age. If you could talk to your 14-year-old self, what would you say? Oh, man. I talk to my 14 year old self, it, it would be chill out, be chill out um, and stop, stop worrying about trying to impress people. And I have to imagine that's probably a common answer, but I think it takes a different shape for each of us. And, you know, I was, I just remember being so wired of like, I've got to accomplish this thing and oh, I got to be cool. I've got to, um, you know, it's like, I got to be cool at school and then I've got to be the best baseball player on the team. I got to be the best basketball player when, you know, we break for recess. Um, when we go to the court on the weekends, I got to be the best. <clears throat> and then when it got into to college and career, it was like, 
got to be the best, got to achieve, got to achieve. And um, I think I've probably burned a lot of unnecessary fuel living that way for a long time. And only recently as I started to settle down a little bit. So yeah, I would just tell myself to chill out. It's great perspective. And that is a struggle for a lot of us at that age is you just have these expectations. And I mean, I'd, I'd be curious with the younger generations, what they think, what they feel, because it's a, it's a different time. And we're both, you know, I'd say the early millennials, if you want to call it that, you know, the late 80s, mid to late 80s babies. And it was a different world. It was back then when we were growing up. And now it's completely different again. And it's just going to be interesting to see as our kids grow, what are they worried about? What are they focused on? And that'd be even funnier to look at our parents' generation than look at us and look at them and see the three different comparisons. I think they'll be wildly different, all three of them. And it's, you know, what's funny is um, I've gotten into reading more history recently and under just, just understanding how much these cycles repeat themselves. The problems are different, but the concepts are very similar. So I'm wondering at what point it'll reset. Is it going to be, you know, our kids, kids or our kids, kids, kids? I think it'll be an interesting cycle. It doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. That's what you always figure out. You I like that. <laughs> yeah, I got to give credit to my high school social studies teacher. She gave me that one. That's all yeah. the high school teachers today. Yeah, high school, middle school. If you're a teacher, I'm probably going to give you a shout out at some point. Feel free to come on the pod and give me even more wisdom. If it's yeah. lasted this long, I got more good stuff. Love it. So any closing thoughts that you'd like to put out there? Um, closing thoughts, you know, just be patient with yourself. Uh, if you're going down this branding journey for yourself or your company, you know, be self-aware, but also give yourself grace. You know, treat yourself like you would a good friend when you're trying to figure out these problems, because it can be easy to be hard on yourself. Um, I know I'm very hard on myself, but I'm very easy and supportive of my friends. So I try to tell myself, you know, this was my friend. How would I treat them? And so that's the advice that I would give. That's fantastic. And that is definitely something a lot of us struggle with is you have high expectations for yourself, but yet put yourself in the shoes of what you do for somebody else, somebody else close to you, especially. So that, that's a great perspective. All right. Thanks again for having me on. This was a blast. Absolutely. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks, Doug. Take care. Thank you for listening to Constructive Curiosity. Visit ConstructiveCuriosity.com to learn more about our mental performance training, career coaching, and business management consulting services. Constructive Curiosity has the insight to get it right. Thank you for listening and keep being the best version of yourself.